<laughs> you wouldn't like it. God is good. Amen. Why does he love us? I don't know. Aren't you glad he does, though? <laughs> we are in Mark chapter 9. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, Mark chapter 9, our study this morning begins in verse 14. Now, as, as you turn there, uh, remind yourself that we are now looking at the last year in the life of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's summer of the year 29 A.D. In the following spring, he'll be crucified. He'll die on the cross, be buried, and on the third day be raised from the dead by his heavenly Father. And in this passage, boy, there just seems to be this growing sense of urgency. The disciples have not been quick learners up to this point. And as we're winding down the last six months, they've been with him for three years, and yet sometimes they still appear so clueless as to what he's talking about. And, and they seem to be thinking and acting in, in the flesh all the time. Well, we saw last week Jesus take three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to the Mount of Transfiguration. They walked all the way up to Mount Hermon above Caesarea Philippi, and just to the north of the modern-day nation of Israel today. And there Jesus was transfigured. He was changed. His clothes became as white as lightning. His face shone like the sun. And so if there was ever a time for the disciples to see Jesus for who he really was, the Son of God, the, the, the Son of God in glory, they got just a hint of that. They came down changed men for sure, Peter, James, and John. But there were nine other disciples not with them. Now as they descend the mountain, they find this raucous crowd surrounding the other nine disciples that had not seen Jesus transfigured. They had not heard the voice of God. Only Peter, James, and John did. So it's a test for the guys coming down from the mountain to believe and to heed the voice of God that came down from the mountain. But the guys down below got to take it by faith. Have you ever heard the audible voice of God? They did. Moses in the Old Testament did. Joshua did. The elders heard the voice of the living God. At Jesus' baptism, the people that were present, they heard the God of glory whose voice thunders, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He didn't just say listen with your ears, but open up your hearts to what he has to say. Listen in here. Listen in here to what he has to say. The voice of God is something that we will hear someday. But we know that God exists for so many different reasons. How do you explain a creation overhead without a creator? How do you do that? Well, I believe in Big Bang, Pastor Jim. Cool. Who decided when it was going to go bang? Who decided who made the stuff that was going to go bang? Who decided the limits of that explosion? Big Bang answers nothing about the existence of God. 
It starts from the premise there is no God. So it seeks a super, an unsupernatural explanation for creation. But you cannot have a creation without a creator any more than the watch that sits on your wrist accidentally happened as a work of evolution over hundreds of billions of years. And coincidentally, one day all of these parts just came together and you've got a Timex. Nobody is unintelligent enough to believe that. And yet that's exactly what evolution teaches. My Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry land, all that is in them. And then to show us His love, despite the fact that every one of us has messed up, has broken His law, He sent His Son, Jesus. As we approach this Easter season, it causes me to anticipate and to remember what Jesus has done, what He is doing presently in and through us and the work of His Holy Spirit in the world today, but it looks forward to the time that He's coming again. Last thing Jesus said on earth is, I'll be back. We have been waiting ever since, not for the Terminator, but for the Lord of life. So we celebrated communion this morning. I remember in the Old Testament, God provided manna in the wilderness for two to two and a half million people for 40 years. Thousands, millions of tons of food in a desert. And Jesus, when he showed up on the scene, he said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life, the only one that can give you eternal life. Every day they had to go out and gather manna anew. But Jesus, when he gives you eternal life, when you put all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and faith and trust in him and say, Jesus, I know you're the son of God. I know you died on the cross to pay the penalty my sins deserved. I know you, you were killed. You were buried. I know that on the third day you were raised from the dead. Because there are Jewish sources that say so, there are Roman sources that say so, and over 500 eyewitnesses to the risen Christ after His resurrection. We believe eyewitness testimony in courts of law right up to the present day. It's the weightiest evidence that can be presented. And there were over 500 of them. Do you believe this is the question. Do you personally believe this, not just intellectually? But have you opened up your heart to him and said, Jesus, I confess my sins to you and I repent of them. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I want you to turn my life around, my home around, my job, all of my relationships. I give you my life. Because prior to my being a Christian, I kind of made a train wreck of my life. You saw pictures of that Ohio train wreck and all the poisonous fumes. That was my life in a nutshell. The mother of all train wrecks, right there burning for all the world to see. But the love of Christ drew me. It wasn't the heat of hell that scared me. It was the love of Jesus Christ that drew me. And I thought, how could he love me? I've sinned so much. I've messed up so much. I've made so many wrong decisions in my life. And he loved me anyway. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, anybody who believes in Him, places all of their faith, trust, hope, and confidence in Him for their eternal destiny, they're going to be saved. So the disciples are working on their faith. They are learning. They are growing. They are not 
there yet by any stretch of the imagination. So as they come down from the mountain, they find the other nine disciples arguing with the scribes and the Pharisees that had dogged them 90 miles all the way from Jerusalem. I mean, all they ever wanted to do, these religious leaders, was find fault with Jesus or his disciples and mock and ridicule and make fun. And they had rejected him. They still do. Lots of Pharisees and religious folks out there that see Jesus as a threat to their way of life, the continuation of their power. Religion sometimes is used to control people. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ who paves the way into God's presence for us. We have access to him through prayer. We can inquire of him anytime we have need of, of direction. When we have a Something that we're dealing with that we just cannot deal with. In verse 14 of Mark chapter 9, it says, When they came down from the mountain to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. What are the teachers of the law doing there? Always trying to find fault. Don't you hate religious people that want to rub your nose in it and somehow come off as holier than thou? That doesn't appeal to anybody. They always come across as spiritual superiors, but... It's just rank hypocrisy in action. As soon as all of the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. The people had been looking for Jesus. They found the other nine disciples. And so the crowd assumed, well, these other nine guys are here. Jesus hadn't shown up yet, but maybe they can help us. We've got an issue. We've got a problem. But the disciples without Jesus were powerless they were powerless because they were faithless. That means they had less faith. The opposite is faithful, full of faith. So this morning, you can have a little bit of faith. You can have a lot of faith. You can have a gnat in weight of faith, or you can have a 300-pound blue whale of faith. I don't know where yours is at, but all of us have room to grow in this thing called faith, don't we? Faith is the same verb in the Greek language as believing. You see, how do I believe in Jesus Christ? Believe the facts that are laid out for us that we've shared at the communion table and in the Word of God today. I believe this is the Word of God. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. To have faith in Him is to put that belief into action. I am believing. It's a part of I'm continuing to do that. My hope and strength, confidence, it's in Him and Him alone. And these religious leaders are making fun of Jesus' disciples saying, well, why can't you guys cast out this demon that's inhabiting this boy? But they, the critics didn't lift a finger themselves, but criticized a powerless bunch of disciples. They dogged them like hyenas circling in for the kill. They'd mocked them. They'd made fun of them. And then the master returns, only to find his sheep being hounded by these wolves, these hypocritical, legalistic teachers of the law that were there to only taunt and mock and ridicule the disciples' failure. And that's where Jesus finds them, right in the middle of this. So he says in verse 16, what are you arguing with them about, he asked. Was he addressing that to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, or his disciples? What are you guys arguing about? It's the kind of conflict that, quite frankly, Peter wanted to avoid by staying up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Have you ever had that mountaintop experience with God where, man, you're going, man, 
God is alive. He's working in me, on me, through me. This life is a bed of roses today, and I haven't discovered any of the thorns yet. It's just a life full of bright colored balloons, and everything is wonderful. Until you have to come down from that mountain. I love my quiet times with the Lord. I love my Bible study. I love our times of praise and worship. I love the fellowship. But you know, Monday morning, we got to come off of this mountain. We actually got to go to work. We actually got to get face-to-face with people that don't know the Lord. And it is not always easy. You know that. To come down from the mountain, now they got to deal with the real situation when we come off of these mountaintop experiences. Jesus shows up because he's there to defend his sheep. Look at at verse 17. And a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him on the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the evil spirit, the unclean spirit, but they were unable They could not do it literally. They didn't have the strength to do it. Strength of what? Faith, not muscle. They didn't have the spiritual strength to do the job. In the eyes of contemporary Jewish exorcists of the day, if this demon had caused not only seizures, but this boy to be deaf and dumb and mute, he couldn't speak at all, the Jewish exorcist thought, well, you can't do anything until you address the demon by name. So you've got to find out what the demon's name is, but this boy can't speak. So the Jews had written him off. Well, we can't do a Jewish exorcism. We don't know what the name of the demon is. Who cares? Jesus does. Jesus knows the demon's name. All you have to do is say, unclean spirit, in Jesus' name, come out. And they're gone. That weight, that power, authority is not resident in me. It comes from heaven above. We are the disciples of Christ, and he has authorized us. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority and power has been given to me. So you, 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 go. Make disciples of all the folks in the nations. Is it biblical to think that you can only drive out a demon if you know his name? Of course not. It's not found anywhere in the Bible. All authority has been given to Jesus. In fact, he is the one who was the agent of God's creation. Nothing was created that Jesus didn't make it. He's got authority over all of these things by virtue of creation. He is Lord, and he delegates that power, that authority to us, his disciples, as the need arises. How do you appropriate that power? This is key. How do you appropriate the spiritual power to cast out the most vicious and powerful demons in all of hell? How do you get that power? How do you acquire that power? First of all, by being a Christian. Second of all, by being filled with His Holy Spirit. Well, you go, how do do I do that? Ask. Ask. You don't get a cookie at my house unless you ask. You won't get a glass of milk to go with it unless you ask. Ask, and I'll give you the whatever abundance we've got in the cupboards. I'll give you anything. But our Heavenly Father is just waiting for His children to ask. James says, you have not because you ask not. You're not asking. Jesus said in, in Matthew 5, ask, seek, knock. It'll be given to you. But there is in this relationship a heavenly Father who dwells above who is simply waiting for you and I to acknowledge Him. 
He loves us. He wants to move and act on our behalf. But we are so stubborn and self-willed. We tough our way through life only to find out this isn't working so good. What do we do when we realize that? We pray. We pray. We say, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Admitting that keeps you humble, and there is a total lack of humility in the world today. Everybody's looking to pad their own ego, strokes on the back. And when all of that is said and done, there's still that emptiness, that spiritual void that only Jesus Christ can fill. Most of us journeyed a good part of our lives before we came to that realization. Well, we came to the end of our own rope, and that's where you find God. When you, come to, when you don't have the answers or everything you've tried doesn't work out, that is the best place in the world to, to say, I just need the Lord. That's the disciples, these nine at the foot of the mountain. God, we tried. We can't do anything. But hadn't Jesus said that? He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. They haven't prayed. They haven't sought the face of God or His power His authority. Jesus isn't there. So they figure, well, we did it before when Jesus told us to. I guess we can do it again. And it became programmatic, it's rote and ritual. Well, certainly that will do the deal, right? I mean, we did it before. Let's just do it like that again. The only problem is Jesus wasn't there, and they hadn't put themselves in touch with that heavenly power. This boy was in desperate straits. You and I would look at this and say, well, this is simply as epilepsy. Not all epilepsy is caused by demons. and Not all demons cause epilepsy. But you have to discern what is what. There is mental illness out there. There is demon possession. Some say there are multi-personality disorders, and other people say maybe you just got a herd of demons in you. But only the spiritual man or the spiritual woman, that person of prayer, can discern which is which. You don't apply a spiritual answer when you have a physical problem. You don't apply a physical fix when it's a spiritual problem. But you need to know which is which. If I need a hammer and nail, I get a hammer and nail. If there's something spiritual going on, I need Jesus. I don't want to do anything or presuppose, well, he did it this way last time. He's going to do it this way again. Every single time, he's going to want me to pray about it. Lord, did I make a mistake? I don't want to make any further. So lead, guide, direct me, Lord, because I'm not sure. I don't know what tomorrow holds. Not all seizures are demonic in origin. Some are symptomatic of brain injury. But I'll bet there are a significant number of people whether homeless or institutionalized in mental institutions that could be set free from their demon possession if there was just somebody around that could discern the difference. Maybe they don't need a pill. Maybe they need Jesus. Demonic, I, I wouldn't encourage you to go looking for a demonic deliverance ministry in your own personal life because that can be some real hair-raising stuff. But every once in a while, the Holy Spirit will impress upon you this has a spiritual solution. You need to pray. That's why you see people at the altar and around the church often just grabbing hands and praying for each other. It's a spiritual problem. That means there's a spiritual solution. That answer, can I tell you, all of your questions in life are answered in Christ Jesus. 
plain and simple. If you Google, what's the answer to life? I don't know. What you probably come up with 187 billion hits in 0.7 seconds. But I'm here to tell you the answer is Jesus, so I don't need to Google that. I take the Son of God at His own word. Jesus is perturbed at their lack of faith, their lack of spiritual strength to handle this situation. So he says to all that are present, oh, unbelieving generation, literally you guys who are faithless, you who have so little faith, believe and, and faith are the same word in the Greek language, one's in the verb form, one's in the noun form, same thing. To believe in Jesus Christ is to, is to trust in Him. To exercise our faith is to believe. Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. It is amazing that Jesus doesn't just walk away after chastising them. He exhorts them, you need some faith. That is acquired by prayer, and you haven't prayed. You wonder why you can't cast out the demon? You don't have the power of God. Why? Because you didn't ask for the power of God. You just presumed, you assumed it was going to happen this way, the, the way it, it did before. He describes a faithless apistos. The A is the negative that goes with that. There is no faith in this generation. And it's plural, so it pretty much addresses everybody that's there. Some of them had a little faith. Some of them had more faith. Some of them had no faith. Where's yours? Do you have faith in God? Do you believe in Him? Have you turned your life over to Him? Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? It didn't matter. Well, my dad was a preacher. That's great. Your dad may be going to heaven. What's that got to do with you? You can ride no one's coattails into heaven. Stand on your own merit. Well, I hope when I stand before the pearly gates, maybe my good deeds will outweigh my bad. Boy, that's a crapshoot. Also, the wrong standard. What is God's standard? Perfection. It's met only in Jesus Christ. It is only met in Jesus Christ. You say, well, I, I'm trying to be a good person. <laughs> yeah, let me talk to your wife. Let me talk to your kids. I'm trying to be a good person is like a hyena trying to be an elephant. The Bible says, all have fallen short the glory of God. We have all missed the mark. All. Have you ever sinned from the womb to the tomb? Ever? Ever made a mistake? Ever sinned against God? Ever used His name in vain? Ever lost your temper? Ever got mad? Ever got jealous or envious? Prideful? 10,000 other... Ever? Ever? Without Jesus, you're going to hell. God's standard is perfection. He didn't relax his, his standards to let Christians into heaven. He met that standard in Christ Jesus. He's my righteousness. Why? Because I have none. I have none. You have none. God's standard is, is perfection. It's like we're in a high jump contest and we say, oh, I think I can handle this. I'm pretty good. You know, I got springy legs. I'm tall and skinny. I can... I'm not talking about me personally, by the way. But some people are tall and skinny. Oh, yeah, I think I could jump that. What's the world's high jump record? Who cares? God's standard is about 10,000 miles high. 
You got no chance of getting over that bar. No chance of getting over that bar without Jesus Christ. So I take off my outer garments of filth and unrighteousness, and I put on His righteousness. It's given to me. I take off my old dirty shop coat that I use out in the garage and crawl under cars with, and He takes that off, and He gives me this brand new thing that looks like I just went to the Mount of Transfiguration. It's His righteousness that gets me into heaven, not my good works. Isaiah said, all of our good works are as filthy rags before the Lord. Those rags that you wipe the grease off of your hands and throw in the corner of your garage, hoping that someday your wife will let you wash them in her washing machine? Never going to happen, by the way. So I wait till she's gone. <laughs> he is my righteousness. The disciples have been with Jesus for three years now. And in verse 19, he chides them for, you guys should be further along than this. Man, where's your faith? Where's your faith? I know sometimes pastors can be a little abrupt, and I apologize if, if I've ever been abrupt with you. But sometimes it is appropriate for the pastor to say to a supposedly mature Christian, where is your faith? You're a child of God. Where is your faith? Oh, I'm worried about this. I'm just pulling my head. don't know what to do. Have you prayed? Well, no. And there's a party that just wants to say, you dork. <laughs> Jesus never said that, so I can't either. But you know, sometimes I can understand where Jesus is. These guys have been with him for three years, seen miracles, done miracles, been on missionary trips, been to the Mount of Transfiguration. They've seen some stuff. And you, go, and you still struggle with your faith? Hmm. Don't we all, don't we all struggle with our faith? You know when I hear that still small voice say, Jim, where is your faith? You know when I hear it loudest? When trials hit. Sickness, infirmity, a child with an illness that takes you to the hospital. You get fired from a job and you don't understand. Life's falling apart. Your marriage's falling apart. Your job's falling apart. And you don't understand. You don't know what you're supposed to do. Don't know what you did wrong. And as a Christian, I, I hear that still small voice say, Jim, where's your faith? Where's your faith? Pastors are tested at least as much as anybody sitting in a pastor's church. We're all tested in different ways, though, aren't we? The things that we face, whether it's personal infirmity or the infirmity of somebody else or jobs or economics or thousand other things, we all face stuff. And you can either do it on your own or you can do it with God. you got a far greater chance of success if you do this with the Lord. And that's the lesson the disciples needed to know. Where's your faith in me? Not faith in you, but where's your faith in God? Where's your faith in me, your Lord, who's been doing miracles with you for the last three years? Where, where is your faith? And then Jesus said, okay, bring the boy to me. And I tell you, we can always come to Jesus when others fail. People will fail us. Pastors will fail us. Churches will fail us. God never will. God never will. So they brought him to him, and the Spirit saw Jesus in verse 
20, and immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell on the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? It is not because Jesus didn't know. God knows pretty much everything. Sometimes God asks you questions like, where's your faith? Not because he doesn't know where your faith's at. He wants you to say out loud where your faith's at. So he asks questions like this uh, constantly. This demon knows that his gig is just about up, and so he throws the boy into a convulsion. He's been like this since childhood, his father answered. It often throws him into the fire and the water to kill him. That's what Satan does. This isn't epilepsy at this point. There's a force at work in this boy's life that wants to destroy him. Can I tell you, Satan is not out to hassle you. Satan wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family, your children, your job, your hope, your future. He is a purveyor of death. That's all he does is lie and cheat and steal and try to get you to buy into all of it. That's what he does. That's who he is. It's what he does. He came to kill and destroy, Jesus said. Don't, without God, this is the enemy that we face. I can't do it apart from Jesus. He often throws him into the fire or the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, obviously, the man had some faith or he wouldn't have come to Jesus at all. What the wording seems to indicate in the original language is, we've tried everything, man. We've been to the doctor's. We went to the religious leaders. We went to church. We went to synagogue. We spent every penny we've had. Finally, we thought, well, we came to see you, but only these nine imbeciles were down here at the foot of the mountain, and they couldn't do jack. So, you know, is there anything you can do? Is there anything you can do? Listen to the test that he puts before the man, starting here in verse 23. This is so instructive. If you can, said Jesus. He just challenged the man's faith. Are you doubting the Son of God's ability? Or have you just given up hope because you haven't come to the Son of God? Well, that's a good question. Do you know the Son of God? I not know about Him. Everybody on the planet knows about Him. But do you know Him personally? It's the difference between believing that George Washington crossed the Delaware River on Christmas Day, 1776. Do you believe that? Sure, it's history. It's fact. It took place. That doesn't mean you know George Washington. You know about George Washington, but you don't know him. You may know about Jesus. You may have grown up in church your whole life. I did with, with the Catholics and the rosary and the swinging smelly pots, you know, I was in the priestly robes, and I was going, dude, I don't understand any of this. I have no idea what any of this has to do with God, but they told me when to stand up, when to sit, when to genuflect. And as a, as a, a kid in New York City, I was always about two steps behind. They're standing up, I'm sitting down. They're kneeling, and, and I'm clapping my hands. I'm getting thrown out of church. I don't have any idea what I'm doing and I thought, if this is religion, I don't want anything to do with it. It's a confusing mess, and every religion out there believes something different. Who's got the truth? Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. Not a way. 
Not any old way, not one among many. I am the singular, only way and the truth and the life. And get this, nobody comes to the Father except through me. You want truth? I looked at all the Eastern religions where I got saved, and they were so, how do you, can you reconcile them when they all teach something different? And they're all centered around sinful, fallen men. I mean, Buddha didn't rise from the dead. Muhammad didn't rise from the dead. There's not a single miracle that's ever recorded from either one of them. Neither, and neither of them ever claimed to be the Son of God. None of them ever rose from the dead, lived a perfect life under the law, and hung on a cross to pay the penalty your sins and mine deserved. So Buddha's out. Islam is out. Hindu deities are out. Ancestor worship. Do you know anything about my ancestors? I ain't worshiping nothing going on with those guys. Bunch of flaky jakes. <laughs> so the Japanese Shinto religion that teaches ancestor worship seems to be an empty cup of water as well. You can say, can Jesus, is he the real deal? Jesus is. Can he meet the deepest needs of my life? Absolutely he will if you turn over your life to him. Worshiping Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is not a place where you stick, the toe, stick your toe in the water to see if you like it. it. This is jumping in the deep end of the pool. You want Jesus or not. It's all in or all out, but there's no in-between. There's no in-between in this gig. So they brought the boy to Him when the Spirit saw Jesus, threw Him into this convulsion, foaming at the mouth, and He's been like this <laughs> since childhood. He answered, if you can do anything to help us, Lord, please. And then Jesus said in verse 23, you doubt my ability? Are you kidding? If you can, underline this. Everything is possible for him who believes. That's your highlighter passage this morning. Everything is possible, but only for those that believe. Believe what? In Jesus. Believe that he's the son of God. Believe that he is the son of God who created the entire universe at God's command. Jesus is everything. The one risen from the dead, the one who died on the cross for my sins. Do I believe this? Have I put all of my faith, my trust and confidence in Him and Him alone? Or when I die, do I hope? I may hope I'm going to heaven. Hope? I know I'm going to heaven. And it's not based on any goodness in me. It's based on the promises of God. That's why Jesus came. If you don't know Him, today would be a great day. In the quiet of quiet places, you don't have to do it here. Do it when you go home. Lock yourself in a quiet place and do business with God. Here's how my prayer went the day I got saved. <laughs> Felt so stupid. 19 years old, Oklahoma City, talking to the ceiling of my mobile home. I was looking at the ceiling because somebody had told me about Jesus. I said, can we just be honest here for a second? Feel like I'm talking to the ceiling. Feel stupid, but if there's a God in heaven, and if Jesus Christ is your son, then Jesus, would you come into my heart and life and save me from my sins? I repent of my sins. I am so sorry. And in that second, a thousand-pound weight was lifted off of my shoulders that I didn't even know was there. The room brightened up. The grass looked greener. Everything all. 
something happened that was radical, and I was all by myself. I wasn't walking no church aisle, listening to some preacher, watching the smoke come out of the censer as some guys goes down the aisle in fancy robes. This was just between me and God. I didn't know if he was real, but I said, but if you are, reveal yourself to me. And boy, did he. That's what he's looking for. Just a little transparency, just a little honesty, maybe a little brokenness. A little humility. God changed my life forever. And that took place when I was 19 years of age. And now that I'm 30, <laughs> plus, I'm starting to mature in Christ. My faith is growing in ways that I don't understand. And he allows trials in my life to allow my faith to grow. I got to tell you, my testimony is this, every trial I've ever faced in life, he's seen me through, or I wouldn't be standing here today. Everything I've ever come up against, he's gotten me through. I'm here. You're here. That's your testimony as well, how faithful God has been. You look at your past and you go, man, I should have died a hundred times. We thought, who, who of us thought we would ever survive our teenage years? Our parents didn't. God had a plan. God had a plan. So Jesus reminds us everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I got a little faith, but my boy's situation requires more than I got. Help me, Lord. If that's your prayer, that's a prayer I can guarantee you God will answer. Because this is a man at the end of his rope who's got nowhere else to turn. So he says, Jesus, I do believe. But I'm a child. I, I got this much faith. And that's all I got. And I need more. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. Simple rebuke. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. He said never enter him again because when demons are cast out, the Bible tells us in Matthew's account that they wander throughout the desert places looking for a place to come to rest. And if they come back and find the same house, the same human soul that's empty, they'll bring with them seven demons and the person's condition will be worse off than they begin. Casting out demons is a piece of cake, but I refuse to cast a demon out of anybody unless they're willing to have that void filled then with Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the demons come back. You leave that door open, there's nothing I can do about that. I can cast them out, cast them out, cast them out, but only you can ask the Holy Spirit of God, the Son of God Himself, to take up residence in your heart. Otherwise, there's still that big, huge spiritual vacuum that is an open door for demons. People of the world play with white magic, thinking, well, that's not an open door to the demons. They turn their back on God and go the ways of the world and invite and do all sorts of things with drugs and partying and entertainment, thinking, well, there's no consequence to that. And eventually they call my office and say, man, i got some nightmares going on I can't deal with. They're demonic. I see things in my house. It's wicked. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, at the Father's confession, I only have a little faith. Verse 28, this, the demon 
shriek convulsed the boy violently and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. He's dead. This was the demon's last hurrah. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples came to him privately and said, why couldn't we drive him out? We were humiliated. You're lollygagging up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, the most troublesome of all of us. We're down here flailing in, in the mire with these guys that are answering, asking questions. We can't answer. Why can't, we couldn't, we used to be able to do, we tried what you told us to do before. What Jesus says is you didn't pray. This kind can come out only by prayer. Now, if you have an older version of the Bible, it may say prayer and fasting, and fasting was not in the original, thus it's not included in the most modern translations. But the point is, prayer and fasting both put you in a place of dependence upon God. Both have their place of value, to be sure, of denying the flesh and seeking God to solve a problem that I can't, to heal a person that I can't to do a miracle where I can. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were at. His time had not yet come because he was teaching his disciples. He's only got six months left. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise again. Jesus never predicted his crucifixion without predicting his resurrection. The two are inextricably bound together. To, be, to believe in the one, you have to believe in the other. They are part and parcel of the same thing. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. How can the Messiah, whose kingdom is going to last forever, how can he die? How can his kingdom last forever? They didn't understand a lot of things, but because the last time Peter took it upon himself to rebuke Jesus when he spoke about the cross, and Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Nobody wanted to hear that, so they're not about to ask Jesus anything. Okay, don't want that on me. You know what, what, I, what I'm spoke to by here? Jesus found disputing scribes, a distracted father, a demon-possessed boy, and defeated disciples. And lovingly and gently, he silenced the scribes. He comforted the father. He healed the boy and instructed his disciples. That's what Jesus does. He turns lives around. Fear and doubt are not of God. Both stand in the way of the faith that believes God's power, His purposes, and promises. And there is no better test of our faith than we see when we see ourselves or our children afflicted. No greater test. That's the test of your faith. That's when you show the whole world whether you're at peace and trusting in Christ or you're all anxious and fretful and out of control. Not all seizures are demonic. Not all demons cause seizures. But discernment is certainly needed. Boy, if... We live in an age that needs discernment. It is today. So what's this all about? Whatever you face today, know this. God is enough. God is enough. You don't have to understand how he's going to pull you out of the fire. You don't have to try to figure out what he's going to do. All you have to do is pray and exercise your faith. Trust, hope, and confidence in him. God, I need you to move. Move in my job or in my family or with my children, Lord. I, I need you to move. I need you to do a mighty work here, please. I'm begging you in Jesus' name. And because you know your heavenly Father now, because Jesus has clothed you in his own righteousness, you have instant access before the throne of glory. God is enough. 
Whatever you're facing today, know this, God is enough. Here's the most unbelievable part of all. He loves you. That melts me like a candle on a hot July day on the sidewalk. It's His love that humbles me. It's His love that got my attention. Maybe you need to get in touch with that love today, and all that's required is surrender. So let's all stand up together as the band comes up here. We're going to give you an opportunity to pray, to seek the face of God, to get saved if you're not saved, to get prayer if there's an infirmity going on in you or your children, you're facing things. My son is, is looking at having a neck surgery uh, possibly this week. We have the pre-op appointment with his cervical spine doc, uh, but his uh, neck is a real mess, and we, I'd like to pray and anoint Rick. I need some elders and deacons down here. And if we could, the Bible says in James, if we anoint and we pray, we can count on God to do a mighty work there. Amen. So, Rick, come on down. Band? Well, there's a handful of them anyway. <laughs> enough to get started, enough to make some noise. This is a song that says, I believe God. Open my eyes, Lord, to the fact that you exist. Open my eyes to the fact that you love me and you've got everything under control. Remind us, Lord, that you're greater than anything I'll ever face. Greater is the one who 